But Keller is incredibly influential and his response, or rather non-response to abortion, is something he actively encourages others to take up as their way of bringing the gospel to today's world. And that's why I want to talk about this, because um, the Keller effect, if we can call it that, and it's not all because of him, but he's probably one of the most influential proponents of it. The Keller effect is transforming the way people conceive, not just of an issue like abortion, but what the church is and how we're called to speak and act in today's world. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of About Abortion. My name is Dave Brennan. Thanks for joining me. Uh, I want to talk to you today about Tim Keller, seeker sensitivity and the silence of the churches on abortion. Um, about a week or two ago, a, a bit of a controversy was sparked when um, a new institute for cultural apologetics um, was launched and it was named after Tim Keller. It's called the Keller Center. And, and this raised a number of eyebrows and um, I, for one, felt really uneasy when I saw this. Um, it didn't sit right, uh, and that feeling didn't go away. And uh, from time to time, something like that happens, and I, and I get this kind of feeling, this sort of slightly queasy feeling in, in, my, in my gut. And um, oftentimes that, that, that means I need to write something. It doesn't always mean that. Um, if someone else is, is, is covering it, then I tend to maybe let it go. But if no one's saying what I think needs to be said, uh, sometimes that feeling, I think, I take that as a sign. There's something here that needs um, looking at. And so I started to look into it a bit, and uh, I say a number of people were, were, were uneasy about this, um, and their reasons were slightly different from mine. So a number of people um, spoke into this and wrote on it, and, and understandably, a number of people were questioning the wisdom of naming uh, you know, a centre after a brother who's still alive. You know, is that wise? He hasn't finished the race yet. Um, is it kind of asking for trouble, not just for the sake of the centre, but for him himself, you know, for, for Tim himself, you know, it makes him a spiritual target. As one person remarked, uh, all ha Satan has to do to take down the entire ministry is get one guy. And so it's not wise, perhaps, on the part of the, the centre and maybe not loving towards the guy himself. Um, much safer to name uh, something after a saint who's who's finished their course um, there isn't the same risk uh, at both ends and so a number of people kind of question the wisdom of that and, and, and i'm with them on that i think it's it's unwise um i actually just find it a bit distasteful the idea of naming something after a, a saint who's alive if, unless there's a really good reason why that has to be um the case um and and, and I th for me it it, it really makes the focus too much on one person, you know, rather than on Jesus. Um, others uh, were concerned about the, the, the sort of, you know, Ravi Zacharias kind of um, risk, uh, you know, history repeating itself. Um, a lot of people have been stunned, whether personally or just sort of as onlookers uh, by the fall of these, um, 
what we thought were great men of God and um, the abuse and the fallout and the the disillusionment that really sprung out of that has caused some to say, well, hang on, is this going to be Ravi 2.0? Now, I'm not terribly concerned about that aspect uh, because this is just a think tank, really. It's not the sort of thing where you're going to have, you know, vulnerable students taken away for weekends without proper supervision and whatever else. It's it's not like that. It's just a, a content producing sort of think tank. But that, that, those are the concerns that others raised. I don't want to dwell on those. You can go and find them. But what I what I want to talk about today and what I've already written about, and if you, if you prefer to read rather than write, do go ahead and just read a blog I wrote on this, brefos.org slash uh, blogs. You can go there and find um, the blog there. And I want to just, um, for those who haven't seen that or just by way of reminder, I want to raise some of the key points from that for you. And then I just want to go a bit further and a bit deeper on this. And, and I want you to understand why I'm doing this. I'm really not um, trying to pick on any individual or, or, or for that matter, the, the group of individuals who have uh, subscribed as as fellows in this new institute. I know one or two of them, they're good guys. I'm sure a lot of good content is going to come out of this uh, think tank. And, you know, I have no doubt their intentions are pure and um, it, there's going to be a lot of good, I'm sure. Um, but I'm, I am concerned about this. And I do want to talk about it. And the reason is I'm not looking to, to sort of pick on an individual, but rather I think that um, kind of underneath this, more fundamental to, than, than just, you know, this individual or that name or whatever, there's a really big problem that we kind of bump into here. Um, and I think it, it goes a long way in explaining why the churches are silent when it comes to abortion. Okay, this is not about finding a, a scapegoat, someone to blame, but it is about trying to identify the problem with precision and diagnose what's wrong with us. Because it's not normal and it's not okay that those who bear the name of Christ in our generation and those who are meant to be salt and light, those who are meant to be the clearest and strongest voices for justice, all too often are totally silent when it comes to the mass slaughter of innocent children in our land and in our day. And, and I, I want to argue now um, that it's, it's not solely because of Tim Keller, but there is something that he not only practices as a kind of methodology of avoiding this issue, he doesn't only practice it and, 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 and in that way sort of model it and kind of encourage others sort of implicitly, he actively articulates this approach and defends it and promotes it. And, and it's not so much the just the damage he's doing by doing that, but it's it's all those who follow him, uh, whether implicitly or explicitly, and make no mistake, this is one of the most influential Christians in the world. Okay, it's, you, you don't get a, an institute for cultural apologetics named after you by accident. Okay, there are people out there who are devoted followers of Keller, and I don't say that in a derogatory manner. It, there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong, with following individuals. Paul says, imitate me as I follow, as I imitate Christ. You know, within certain limits, it's good to imitate other Christians. It's good to learn from them. It's good to be um, their disciples with a little d, uh, so long as it's all about Jesus. That I'm not pouring scorn on that idea per se, but Keller is incredibly influential, and his response, or rather non-response to abortion, is something he actively encourages others to take up as their way of bringing the gospel to today's world. And that's why I want to talk about this, because 
um, the Keller effect, if we can call it that, and it's not all because of him, but he's probably one of the most influential proponents of it. The Keller effect is transforming the way people conceive, not just of an issue like abortion, but what the church is and how we're called to speak and act in today's world. And, and uh, quite significantly, um, Keller and this whole approach um, really, they, they sort of push this this particular approach and this trend right into churches that would call themselves quite reformed, conservative, evangelical churches, churches that would certainly um, deny that they are growing liberal or bending the word of God or anything like that. They would see themselves as very conservative, very word-based, um, perhaps generally quite uncharismatic, but they, they, would, they would say that they are word people. And yet it's very much amongst that network of churches that this, um, and I'm going to call it unbiblical, this unbiblical approach is being promoted and shared. And, and uh, I can't speak with much authority at all in, in terms of what's going on in America, but certainly here in the UK, a very influential man whose books are read and circulated by any number of church leaders and pastors. And it's, um, and it's encouraging an inaction and, and silence when it comes to abortion. So, so really what I want to focus uh, on here is, is what I'm calling the Keller effect. Okay, now, um, as I said in my essay, my article, I, I don't think Keller is generally a bad egg. That's not what this is about. Um, I think he's an, an incredibly gifted um, preacher of the gospel in many ways, although I think what we're going to talk about today does, does qualify that statement a bit because I think some of the edges of his preaching um, go unbiblical, actually. But but in general, I think he's a, a gospel man. I think he's a, a, a very proficient Bible teacher. Um, I think he's an excellent apologist when it comes to um, the historicity of the Christian faith. And in fact, when I was a student giving evangelistic talks um, in college, uh, I probably plagiarized so much of, of Keller's work that I'm, I'm in breach of copyright law. I mean, I really depended on him for um, you know, demonstrating the historicity of the Gospels and the resurrection and um, you know, the reason for God was, well, I think that came out when I was a teenager and um, you know, incredible piece of work. So you know, I'm grateful um, for all these things. So this really isn't about trying to shred the guy. Okay, but my contention is this, when it comes to cultural apologetics specifically, and that's what this institute is all about, cultural apologetics, it's precisely on that point that Keller is at his weakest. And in fact, he fails to make even basic sense in this area, which is very uncharacteristic of him. He's, a, he's got a brilliant mind. He's a, he's a, a master of, of the English language. But when it comes to this whole area, um, he's not even cogent. Um, he says things that don't even um, make basic logical sense, let alone biblical sense. Um, and that really matters. Um, there's a quote uh, attributed to Martin Luther that goes along the lines of, of this, where, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is tested and proven. To be faithful or loyal on all other fronts besides is, is nothing if we're not faithful there where that battle line is. That, so, so if you want to really understand the strength of a certain approach to cultural apologetics or even gospel faithfulness, Look for where the battle lines are in the culture today. Where, is the, where are these lines? Where is it raging? And I want to say that the greatest issues of our day and the, and the fiercest battle lines of our day 
are ethical and they're anthropological. That is to say, it's about uh, morality of, of actions and behaviors, particularly sexual ethics, but also other things. And they're anthropological, what it means to be human. What, what is a man? What is a woman? Uh, how do we relate? So sexual ethics and life issues, these are really the, the greatest issues of our day. So how is Keller responding to those issues? And I want to say, actually, it's on those issues he's at his weakest. Um, sometimes his quietest, but then um, when he does speak out, um, it's found wanting, okay? So um, a number of years ago, 2019, um, where the um, Twin Towers used to stand, we've now got the Freedom Tower in New York City, where Tim Keller um, lives and ministers. Um, that, that tower was lit pink to commemorate when um, baby genocide was legalized right up until birth in that state. Okay, so New York City is one of the, and the state, really a, something of an epicenter for the global baby genocide. Um, in many years recently, more black babies have been killed in the womb in New York than have been born alive. Now, interestingly, Tim Keller will, will write and speak prolifically on uh, racism and other social justice issues. But the thing that's killing more black babies than are being born alive in his own city, he says almost nothing about. He certainly didn't say anything that time in 2019 when the, the genocide was aggravated and, um, and legalized even more than it already was. Now, as I say, this isn't just a kind of accidental oversight or, well, he doesn't say anything and that's, and that's it. He, act, he actually um, talks about not talking about abortion and, and um, defends that. So in an article for Christianity Today, um, Keller kind of, if I'm honest, he, he poured scorn on the idea, really, of speaking out clearly for the unborn child. He kind of stereotyped that as, well, that's being moral, that's moralizing, that's pushing moral behaviors, that's religion. And anyone who's familiar with Keller's work will know that he, he, he draws this very sharp distinction between gospel and grace, and kind of legalism, moralism, and sort of being judgmental. And of course, that's an important distinction. My concern is that all too often, he takes what is actually part of authentic biblical witness and mischaracterizes that as pushing moral behaviors. That's Phariseeism, that's, that's just being legalistic, that's self-righteous, that's not gospel grace. And I think he's, although the distinction is key, I think he's, he's grouped, um, into those two areas, some things, uh, he's grouped them wrongly. And he's, he's pushed things into different camps that actually don't need to be there. And, and in doing so, he's caused a great confusion, okay? So he, he uh, mischaracterizes um, defending unborn children as so-called pushing moral behaviors. Uh, it's religion as opposed to Christianity. And this is an anecdote he shares in his Christianity Today article. He says this, a woman who had been attending our church for several months came to see me. Do you think abortion is wrong? She asked. I said that I did. And then she says, I, I'm, I'm coming to see now that maybe there is something wrong with it. Now that I have become a Christian here and have started studying the faith in the classes. As we spoke, I discovered that she was an Ivy League graduate, a lawyer, a longtime Manhattan resident, and an active member of the ACLU. She volunteered that she had experienced three abortions. I want you to know, she said, that if I had seen any literature or reference to the pro-life movement, I would not have stayed through the first service. But I did stay, and I found faith in Christ. If abortion is wrong, you should certainly speak out against it. But I'm glad about the order 
in which you do it. Now, there's a part of me that's really sympathetic to that. There's an evangelistic um, sort of uh, desire to see people come to Christ and, and, and not to put any blockage in their way. And, and this woman said herself, oh, if you said this, I wouldn't have stuck around and then maybe she wouldn't have become a Christian and so on. If, if, the, if the camera is just on this one woman and her individual salvation, it almost makes sense to take this approach. If that's the only thing we're called to do is to make sure that we never offend someone, that they don't get pushed off and then they'll stick around and maybe they'll make a profession of faith. But the thing is, whilst they're having this conversation, there's a genocide raging outside, a silent one, but it's raging. In our nation, it's more than 500 babies killed every single day. Now, she said it's about the order in which you do it. Now, if by that she means only after being asked directly in a private conversation, then what that amounts to is zero public witness against the evil of the genocide. It means not being a voice for the voiceless. In short, it means disobeying clear biblical commands to, to stand up for the oppressed, for the widow, for the orphan, and to be a voice, to open our mouths for the mute, to pursue justice and not just individual salvation. It's interesting the way in which uh, Kellogg sort of um, categorizes what's going on here. He sees, um, he sees abortion, presumably, as just an issue to do with the woman, a kind of personal, pietistic kind of thing, rather than actually taking the life of other innocent human beings. Um, and, and, and I think some of that shines through in, in the language he uses. He talks about experiencing three abortions. Now, yes, she has an experience there, but the babies also have an experience. Uh, and that doesn't seem to feature at all here. So I'm all for removing every possible hindrance to the gospel. And in a sense, I see myself in this. And I, my thinking was a lot like this. I remember during my school years, teenager, maybe going into university as well, I thought the way to be evangelistic was to remove every possible offense, be as similar to everyone else as possible, remove every kind of blockage, and, um, and, in, and in doing so, make sure everyone thinks I'm just a really nice, rational guy, and uh, why wouldn't they want to become a Christian? The problem with that is the heart is deceitful above all things. And it's really convenient if your evangelistic methodology involves everyone liking you and no one hating you. It's really convenient if your evangelistic methodology uh, means that uh, persecution is out of the question and being misunderstood is out of the question. It's just not biblical. I mean, we probably can't get into this in any great depth right now, but when we look at the way Jesus did evangelism, it's the polar opposite. He didn't tiptoe around the hot button issues, uh, the personal issues that could have caused offense. To the rich young ruler, he talked about his money. To the woman at the well, he talked about her sex life. To the, to the brothers who were fighting over the inheritance, Jesus just preached a, a sermon against greed. All the time, Jesus is putting his finger on uh, that which could cause offense. And when his disciples came up and said, teacher, don't you realize the Pharisees were offended when you said this? He said, leave them. They're blind guys leading the blind. Jesus doesn't join us in our campaign to avoid offense. Jesus is not a sort of persecution dodger in the way that we are. And so intuitively, I can, I can sort of sympathize with this approach. Indeed, I've been there myself. I'm probably still there far more than I should be. 
it's very natural to want to try and build uh, bridges and find the common ground and, and remove every hindrance, but not to the point of disobeying biblical commands. We can't go that far. We can't um, abandon the unborn uh, to their violent end because we won't speak out for them for fear of offending others. And as I say, this, this approach, and I'm not saying it's all attributed to, to Keller directly, but this approach is everywhere in Western churches. We talk about seeker-sensitive churches, where the idea is just get them in through the doors, never uh, say anything offensive, because um, we want them to stay here. We want to, to hear the gospel, make a profession of faith. And again, I'm all for that to an extent. The problem is, if we're censoring the word of God, and that's what this is, it's censoring the word of God, so as to avoid offence, there comes a point where actually, is it even the gospel they're responding to? Because if it's the gospel minus all the offence, is it really still the gospel? And interestingly, um, Bonhoeffer, who I'll come on to talk about a little bit more in a moment, but he said that when um, the, the German Lutheran church, the mainstream church, abandoned uh, the Jews and wouldn't speak up for them, um, he said their evangelism actually became heresy because they were censoring the word of God and they were not submitting themselves to the Lordship of Christ. They were um, submitting themselves instead to the Lordship of the Fuhrer. And so our evangelism becomes heresy if we censor the word of God and change it to make it more palatable to our culture. So there comes a point when you have to ask, is, is it even the real Jesus they're responding to? Okay, but even if it is, we are not at liberty to change the rules and say that Christianity is all about just getting people into the door and making a profession, even if that is authentic, um, and, and, and will deliberately say no to the other commands of God, because evangelism isn't the only thing we're called to. We're also called to holiness, righteousness, justice. And that's the, the problem with this seeker-sensitive approach, which, as I say, is, is everywhere in the Western church, even in very conservative evangelical churches in the UK that would see themselves as the most reformed, the most biblical, it's very normal in those circles. Okay, they might say, yeah, we're pro-life, we're very clear on that, but they'll never speak about it. And the way they justify that is, that's gonna put people off. We're just here to preach the gospel. It's incredibly common. It, it's this way in many of the um, Christian Union mission weeks in universities, where they'll, they'll um, look at all the hot topics, except they won't, they'll look at the sort of medium temperature topics, um, they won't do the hottest topics like abortion uh, because th they fear that there'll be too much offence and people will be put off the gospel. So even when they say they're tackling hot topics like sexuality or racism or whatever, they will tend to be over-sympathetic to the social justice sort of um, prevailing uh, point of view in, in our kind of largely secular, quite sort of progressive culture um, and they will hesitate to give clear biblical um, counterpoints to, to those ideas and ideologies and uh, it was very common for me at university to to go to these talks about sexuality or whatever and they would actually talk around the issue rather than targeting it head-on and and they would prefer generalities of identity and worth and you know important foundational things, um, but you often come out of the talk still not clear on what Christianity was really meant to think about, homosexuality, or, I mean, we never talked about abortion at all. 
But this is the this is the issue. It, the, the Keller effect, and it's not all down to him, but he's probably one of the the sort of most influential proponents to keep the controversial issues out of the public eye, out of the pulpit, and so-called just preach the gospel. Well, it becomes a more and more narrow, watered-down gospel, devoid of its offence and devoid of its practical applications. It becomes almost a Gnostic gospel, uh, an abstract. Um, over-spiritualized gospel that doesn't actually have the concrete application that we see in Scripture. So I want to just um, zoom in now on uh, what Keller says specifically about abortion in uh, on, on the, the few occasions when he has uh, spoken into it and, and kind of where it intersects with politics. Now, just a, a quick word about politics. Everyone is involved in politics. We might like to try and avoid politics, um, but politics is simply uh, one manifestation of our ethical um, convictions and behaviours. And um, ironically, some of the people who would love to say they are uh, not politicised, not politically engaged, or the Gospels above, above politics or whatever, ironically, those can be the very most politicised people in our midst, because the only way you can um, so-called stay out of politics is if you absolutely agree with the strongest political uh, trends and currents and voices of the day. That's the only way you can live under the illusion that you're not being political, by just agreeing and opting for the status quo. And then in a sort of camouflage effect, you might feel like you're not being political, but actually you're just flowing with the mainstream. And that, I fear, is what Keller um, is really doing. He, he, he wants to suggest that the gospel is neither left nor right, He's got this kind of gospel transcends politics sort of paradigm, and therefore, you know, no one can say if the left is more, um, you know, truly Christian in its policies than the right. You know, it's um, they're they're always the same. You know, it's always a bit of this, bit of that, and he refuses to to permit any um, any more sort of allegiance in terms of Christian ethics to one party or the other. Now, again, there's a sense in which I can be sympathetic. Uh, with this. Certainly the gospel and Christianity can't be uh, reduced to a political party or even a set of policies. Um, Apart from anything else, you're always going to have strengths and weaknesses in any party. Um, But even if you had the perfect political party, if I can put it that way, Christianity is more than a set of moral codes. It's not just a a list of do's and don'ts, uh, but it's not less than a moral code. That is to say, Christianity is not amoral. It's not as though there isn't a Christian answer to whether it's okay to kill babies. It's not as though there isn't a Christian answer as to whether it's wrong to steal. Christianity is intensely moral. And the issue is that Keller almost wants to uh, keep morality out of Christianity. And that's really problematic. And that's where uh, some of his message goes really off the rails. So as I say, I can I can appreciate um in part, this you know the gospel is neither left nor right, but Keller takes this this kind of uh, paradigm uh, ad insaniam to to the point of insanity, um, and particularly in the culture in which we live, uh, which is becoming more and more radically secular, the so-called progressive agenda, and so on. Keller's paradigm is becoming more outdated by the day. Now, possibly there was more space for it, maybe forty years ago, sixty years ago. Uh, there was a time when uh, there wasn't any particular party or agenda 
that was so egregiously anti-Christian that perhaps at that time, yeah, keeping the gospel and politics a bit more separate might have made sense. But there are times in history when such egregious evils are taking place and when the leaders or the parties in power are so corrupt and wicked that silence in the face of that is really um, an abandoning of our Christian duty, the dereliction of duty. And, and this really comes out very clearly when uh, just a few years ago, Keller uh, started commenting a little bit on um, what was going on. Um, well, four years ago in that article, but then since then, uh, as, as Roe v. Wade was, was uh, about to be overturned. So, so we're talking last year now. And here's kind of neither the left nor, nor the right approach uh, hasn't gone away. So um, on Twitter, uh, Keller commented on um, the fact that Christians uh, shouldn't be left or right, and there's no kind of Christian answer to which party is better, specifically on the issue of abortion. So he wasn't talking about trying to weigh up a kind of a package of different policies and, you know, any, any party is going to be a mixed bag and there'll be some policies we agree with, some we don't as Christians. We concede that. But he spoke just specifically on the issue of abortion and he tried to claim uh, this. He said, the Bible doesn't tell me the best political policy to decrease or end abortion in this country, nor which political or legal policies are most effective to that end. So he did at least concede abortion was evil. He's, he's done that once, I think. I've seen that once on Twitter. He said he's pro-life, but he's now saying the Bible doesn't tell me which party will best advance the interests of the unborn child. Now, in a sense, he's right. The Bible doesn't tell you, but of course, a basic ability to read tells you. Um, being able to hear what uh, people are saying tells you, they, my, my seven-year-old daughter could tell you that the party working to end a genocide, or at least reduce it, is doing far more for the interests of, of those people than the party that's actively looking to increase the genocide. I mean, I cannot tell you how bloodthirsty the Democrat Party is in the States. They want abortion up till birth. They want infanticide. They want what they call post-birth abortion. They are trying to increase the genocide. And, and this is where Keller, in his zeal for this sort of trans-political paradigm, um, this is where he, he actually just comes out totally incoherent and, and frankly a bit ridiculous, trying to claim that the left is, is no different from the right, the right, you know, who can say which is better or worse, even on this one specific issue. And so here you see Keller is wedded to this paradigm, this gospel transcends politics paradigm, um, this gospel actually devoid of concrete, inescapable moral implications. He's so wedded to that, he's willing to say things that simply don't make sense. So one gets the impression um, of a man who wants to keep things abstract in the face of the mounting evidence that this just simply doesn't work. There may be times and places where this paradigm is more suitable. But in the way America is today, it's frankly uh, ridiculous if we weren't tragic. And one of the greatest ironies about all of this is that Tim Keller actually wrote the foreword for Eric Metaxas's book on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which is a fantastic biography. And in that, Bonhoeffer is constantly calling out people who were making the exact same mistake that Keller is making today. And I'm amazed that Keller couldn't see it as he read that book and wrote his foreword. Bonhoeffer um, challenged the apathy and the sort of quietism of his day, which was justified in very much the same terms. We don't want to burn bridges. We want to 
be able to preach the gospel to those in power. We don't want to turn people away. We don't want to get caught up in politics. The gospel is bigger than this. Bonhoeffer called out all of that stuff. He said, you know, only he who cries out for the Jews may sing Gregorian chants. What he's saying there is it's hypocrisy. This is theater if you're claiming to hold fast to the gospel, but you will not speak against the greatest evil of your day. Times haven't changed. We're, we've just come full circle again. Here we are in a day when there's a raging genocide and there are people who see themselves as the, the sort of descendants of Luther, the part of the reform movement. We just want to preach the gospel. There can even be an element of, dare I say, conceit. This idea that we're the nuanced ones. We, we can see though. Those radicalized right-wing Republicans, you know, those the religious right, they just can't see, they don't get it. They don't understand the gospel so much bigger than politics. There can be a slightly condescending tone, as if only the, this, this elite group of people can see through the politics, and they, only they have the wisdom to see that it's neither the left nor the right, but something that transcends. And most Christians I know who are actively speaking out against abortion, they see that perfectly well. They, 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 they don't think Trump is, is uh, Moses or Elijah back from the dead. They, they know that the Republican Party has its, has its faults. And they, and they can appreciate that those policies uh, on the left side of things that, that may also be good. It is a mischaracterization. It's, a, it's, a, it's an awful stereotype to say that they, they can't see anything more than their political affiliations and their Christianity. It's simply not the case. In fact, the problem is on the other side with those who want to keep all moral implications away from their Christianity and opt for silence in the face of evil. Um, a quote attributed to Bonhoeffer, and I'm not sure how historically um, strong the case is for saying he definitely said it, but he said something along the lines of this. Um, silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. God will surely not hold us guiltless. And the scriptures echo that sentiment again and again. Proverbs 24 verses 11 and 12, um, hold back those staggering toward the slaughter. But if you say, oh, we, we knew nothing about this, does not God perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? He weighs our hearts, he sees what we see, and he's watching as to how we're going to respond. And, and, the, and the, the stark truth of it is this, not only Keller, but many um, pastors, preachers, teachers of the word of God across the Western world are living in the midst of unspeakable bloodshed. I mean, a scale we can hardly imagine. And they're saying nothing. And my concern is that when another uh, Eric Metaxas comes along in, in 100 years time and, uh, and writes history of our day, how many of us are going to be, as it were, on the side of the German Lutheran church, the mainstream church, saying nothing, um, saying, oh, we're just here to preach the gospel, refusing to condemn evil? And how many of us actually will be considered amongst the faithful, like Bonhoeffer? The irony is those who think they're staying out of politics are the ones being most radically politicized. Not to speak is to speak. 
not to act is to act well i i pray that it's not too late for keller to turn around and be counted and 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 many more who are currently silent and apathetic in the face of this genocide uh, we don't have the option to stay silent we've got to speak um, and that's why it's important we take moments like this little moments like the, the establishing of this this uh, the keller center which suggests that this is the, the 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 line of apologetics we want to continue further into the 21st century this is the way to do it we've got to stop and say hang on can it really be um the greatest example of cultural apologetics that we've got uh, to our fingertips to say nothing in the face of the greatest evil of our day.